Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today uh, asking uh, for you to guide us by your spirit and teach us uh, from your word. Father, we love you and thank you for uh, this passage and thank you for revealing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Mark didn't tell the whole story about how he uh, asked me to speak. He actually, when he called, he said, uh, earlier this week, I called the guy who's the favorite at Open Door, and he couldn't do it. And then Mark said, I also, then I called, so I called the guy who's the best looking guy, and he couldn't do it. And and then he said, I call the guy who's just, he knows the most. He's the most well-studied. He's wise. He couldn't do it. He t- talked about two other people that he called that couldn't quite do it. And then he said, you know, after calling Jason five times, I decided I would just settle for you. <laughs> so here we go. The backup. It was really fun to hear from Dr. Smith the last couple of weeks about the rapture and the ascension. He is so right. These are critical doctrines. Hopefully we hit on a critical doctrine today, maybe in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you want to turn there with me, feel free. We may touch on a little bit about the millennial reign of Christ. Another doctrine that isn't so focused on. So, uh, so far, I know it's been a while, but we've uh, studied kind of through Hebrews 1 and 2 when I've been the last couple of times uh, speaking. We're going to continue. So far, we've seen that Jesus is better. He is the better revelation. He is better than the angels. And today we'll see that he's better uh, than Moses. And we'll continue from there. So let's read. Verses 1 through 6, we read 1 through 4 there, Uh, so here we go with verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his whole house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our com- excuse me. Hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope, firm until the end. So from the scriptures, we know that Moses was a most humble man. The most humble man is what the scriptures tell us. Here we see that Moses was faithful in all his house. We know he protected Hebrew slaves when they were mistreated. He told Pharaoh the truth. He was a renowned leader. We could go on and on, right? This passage about Moses... Do you remember the words of the religious leaders in Acts chapter 6? And I quote, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews primarily. Outside of the scriptures, what were the Jews' opinions of Moses? So really quickly... Moses and things said of him in rabbinic literature. So what the Jews were saying in that time period. 
Heaven and earth were created only for Moses' sake. Although Noah was not worthy to be saved from the flood, he was saved because Moses was destined to descend from him. He was born circumcised and was able to walk immediately after birth. These are all things said in rabbinic literature about Moses. A mysterious light filled the house when he was born. He spoke with his father and mother on the day of his birth and prophesied at the age of three. His Egyptian mother saw the baby in the reeds, caused it to be brought to her, and in touching him was cured of her leprosy. When she opened the uh, casket, she was astonished at his beauty and she saw the Shekinah with him. A couple more. Moses was a very large child at the age of three and it was at that time, sitting at the king's table in the presence of several princes and counselors, he took the crown off of Pharaoh's head and placed it on his own at the age of three, Pharaoh's table. God taught him also everything that all students learn in a Jewish school, um, God taught him every single one of those things without any teacher in his life. Um, so needless to say, the Jews had quite a high view of Moses. This chapter of God's word of the New Testament was pretty necessary in the life of a Jew in that day and age. They needed to hear something In relationship to, well, who is Jesus and who is Moses? The whole thrust of these first six verses is Jesus is better than Moses. Let's look at a couple of details. In verse 1, there's no doubt he's speaking to believers as it begins. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's talking to believers. If we've forgotten all the other mentions that uh, show us in the book of Hebrews that these are believers. We have it. Rem- we're reminded of it there in verse one. Holy brethren, hagios, the ones who are holy. And then we see this. There's this heavenly calling, a call from heaven and toward heaven. God calling, calling them toward heaven. Consider Jesus. Really appreciated the music today, as we could consider Jesus together. It doesn't say that we are to consider the angels. It doesn't say that we are to consider the prophets. It doesn't say to consider Moses. Not consider the old system. It says we are to consider Jesus. And this consider, the term, uh, actually the definition is to think of from up to down. To think of Jesus from up to down. Everything that you can know about Jesus, reconsider. Consider continually. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. In our daily struggles, in our successes, in our relationships with one another, we are to consider Jesus. If I'm speaking to a believer or a non-believer, I think that would be my primary encouragement. Consider Jesus. If they're a non-believer, consider Jesus and his death on the cross for your sin. And maybe for a believer, the same reminder and then many other reminders that go on from there. Now, uh, here in verse 1 is the only time that we see Jesus in the New Testament called an apostle. That could sound confusing. What's going on here? Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, this term apostle, and all the other times it's used in the scriptures, means messenger. He's a messenger almost every other time. Okay, uh, This specific term means messenger. 
He's the messenger revealing God to us, as chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 showed us. He is revealing God to us. He is a messenger revealing God to us. He is our high priest. We come to God through him, as many of us would pray in Jesus' name. I was reading a book on prayer this summer, and the author said, like, do you really believe that? When you're praying to the Lord and you in Jesus' name, do you believe that you're saying, on Lord, on behalf of your son, I pray that you would act in our world, for, that you would act in my life, I pray on behalf of your son, in Jesus' name. Believe it when you pray that way. He is our high priest, the high priest of our confession. And then verse 2 continues, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was in his whole house. Christ was faithful, and Moses was, and what's this speaking of here for Moses? It's when he was building the tabernacle, when he put the tabernacle together for the Lord, for worship. And verse 3 continues, The builder has more honor than the house. Is this true? We have all experienced probably some architecturally beautiful or some well-designed uh, building that left us in a bit of awe. Uh, I grew up, uh, first five years of my life, in a medium-sized town, Woodstock, Ontario, Canada. And uh, I got a little downtown pick there. So we've got two or three floors maybe. Those are the first five years of my life. That's the large architecture, right? And then I moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for the next few years of my life. Yeah, not bad. And then at 11 years old, we moved to Kansas City. And I vividly remember the first time our family went downtown to meet Dad at work, where he worked in, right? Yeah? Okay, in this building, he worked for Sprint. And we went downtown to meet him, and we got out of the car, and I looked up, and I said, oh my goodness, this was amazing to me. I hadn't seen it, I hadn't stood right below something that large in my life, Kansas City, the largest city, no, okay, a good-sized city (laughs) compared to what I knew at that time in history. As an 11 or 12-year-old, I looked at it and said, whoa. And I hope maybe you've had a moment like that in your life where you've looked at some building or some piece of architecture and said, wow. Now, when you say it, and when I said it, maybe I didn't think it right then. Maybe you don't think it right away, but is it the building itself that is the thing that deserves glory, that deserves laud? Do we laud the building? Oh, what steel that put itself together. Oh, the stone that created. No. If we think about it, and if you have that sort of mind, and I sometimes do, sometimes don't, like, you think about, wow, who did this? Who did this? This is amazing. To this day, I wouldn't be the one who could say, oh, I understand. I understand exactly how that was. No, I I can't get there. My brain doesn't work that way. Some of yours probably do. But when, when you look at that piece of architecture and say, who did this? The architect and the ones who built it are the ones who deserve maybe the laud. Deserve to be lauded. Not even in the heavens do buildings build themselves. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Not even in the heavens is it that way that it builds itself. No. No. It's the one who builds an incredible building without a creator or builder or architect doesn't exist 
Verse 4 continues that thought, but goes much deeper. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Is this not an evidentiary argument for God? Is this not evidence for God? I personally take it a step further. I don't mind if you don't go with me on this. Uh, But we do really think, uh, but do we really think, I should say, do we really think that macroevolution is a better explanation for what we see around us than God's spoken word? Something from nothing. Are you kidding me? And when we look at this building, we say, something from nothing. Yeah, probably. No, no. Hebrews 11.3 states, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. The NASB, NASB says, By the word of God. In the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word there is amar. And God said, and it was so. And in Latin, ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Out of nothing. In my humble opinion, this macroevolutionary brainwashing that many children get in our uh, United States today and around the world undermines God's word. It undermines God's creative action. And in that, almost any other truth found in the word of God, you can question if we question that he is created. And if he is not created in the way that the scriptures describe. Don't get me wrong. Natural selection, survival of the fittest. There are some parts of microevolution that make a lot of sense and that are true, that happen. We do see those things in nature, and that's good. We should be studying nature. That's called science. And if we see it happening, great. But the historical science that's done today and taught to our children is uh, problematic, given these verses, even just here in Hebrews chapter 3. Soapbox fully spoken. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. In the early model that we see there, the tabernacle, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. He was faithful in the building of the tabernacle. And it was a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. There are later temples that come after that tabernacle. Obviously, we see... Uh, two temples specifically in the Old Testament, and then we're going to see a temple in the Millennial Kingdom where Jesus will reign from that temple. <clears throat> and we have God as the temple into eternity. So Moses was faithful in that early model that spoke forward, that looked forward to the temple worship that would take place. There will be a literal temple. And Moses was faithful in his work in that tabernacle. And verse 6 continues, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Christ is going to rule. He is going to rule in the kingdom in a unique way. That doesn't mean that he's not ruling today. God is ruling today, and Christ is at his right hand. But Christ is going to rule in the kingdom on this earth from Jerusalem. He was and is faithful in preparing for this rule. We are the household of God in that worship takes place in us, 
we are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have from God. And we are temples in this way that's mentioned here, uh, if we hold fast, okay? We are his house, and if we, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The writer of, the Hebrews here, of Hebrews here is telling us to hold fast. Be the temple that is full of worship. That's who we should be. When we're not living a life of worship, are we a good representa- representation of the true temple to come? Where worship will be unceasing today in Sunday school. We were talking about the temple worshipers in Zephaniah. The worshipers in Zephaniah that will come up to Jerusalem from Ethiopia and from the ends of the earth. And they'll bring sacrifice and they'll worship. It will be full of worship. It won't be a place that will be some worship mixed with some worship of false gods. Some worship with... No. Be a place full of worship. And our lives as we hold fast are lives full of worship. Think of it individually, but also think of it for a church, for Open Door, for other churches that we come in contact with. Is a church that's not worshiping in spirit and truth a good representation of the temple or temples to come? No. No. If you look at a church where there's no worship going on, it's not a church. It's not a good representation of the temple to come. But if we hold fast our confidence, it is. So Jesus and Moses were both faithful. That's what we learned there. But Jesus, so much greater than Moses. Because his house is everything. The things he's created. But today it's the house, the church. Um, uh, We are his house and believers as temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, verses 7 through 11, let's continue there. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Okay, so the ideas are changing here. What what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is a little bit different. They had their today, verse 7. Today, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. These readers of the book of Hebrews, of this uh, sermon, of this letter, the readers, they have their today. When they should not be hardening their hearts when they should be submitting to the Lord. This is their today. There was also a today in Moses' time for those wilderness wanderers. We're going to see their story as we finish up the chapter. Those wilderness wanderers had their today when they could not harden their hearts. They could have decided to follow the Lord, to obey, to believe. In David's time, this is a quote from Psalm 95. David was saying to the people of his age, Here's your today. Your today is an offer. Today you can not harden your hearts like those who went before you. Every generation of believers needs to continue to believe. To guarantee that we enter into our rest. Today is the day of salvation. 
the quotes, again, like I said, from Psalm 95, and just previous to these verses, uh, verses 7 through 11 are taken from Psalm 95. Just previous to that in Psalm 95... Uh, is a little tune that you might be familiar with. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Yeah. For he is our God and we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then we see these specific verses right after that worship. What we have there in Psalm 95 is an enthronement psalm. Envisioning Christ's reign in the kingdom. Come, let us worship and bow down. Kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. The time when they'll, in the kingdom, come to the temple and lay down their sacrifice. And we'll worship together. This passage describes, uh, going forward, it's going to describe the failure of the wilderness wanderers in their worship. They have the opportunity to worship the Lord in their belief, in their obedience. Come, let us worship and bow down. But... David says, remember the wilderness wanders. They hardened their hearts and they didn't worship. And they didn't come to the Lord. uh, And they didn't believe. David then continues and he warns the people of his generation. Just as the writers of Hebrews does in his. Don't harden your hearts. Don't go astray in your hearts. If they go astray, there will be consequences. The consequences he mentions here... And he continues to speak about in the following verses is they're missing out on rest. Um, So what is this rest that they may lose? That's the question. What's the rest? Well, uh, one thing it does not mean, in my humble opinion, is salvation or heaven. I don't think that's what's the, the idea behind rest. Study it yourself. Be a good Berean and study the word and try and understand what the Lord is getting at here. Many teachers would teach that rest means salvation in heaven. And if it does, we've got an issue. Like maybe there's a loss of salvation that's going on here. Um, I don't think it means that. Let me share a little bit of why. Exodus 4, verses 30 and 31, talk about the generation that walked out of Egypt that were to die in the wilderness. And here's what it says. It says that they believed the Lord. And it's the same exact construction in the Hebrew as when you see in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They believed the Lord. Uh, So it's this Hebrew word with a preposition that lends itself to saying that they entered into a relationship with the Lord. They believed the Lord. They entered in that relationship with the Lord. Numbers 14.20, God says about that generation, I have forgiven them according to your word, Moses. Since when do we serve a God who forgives a certain few of your sins and then all the other sins? No, on account of those sins, then you're going to die. But let me just forgive these few over here. And then over here, nope, not those. What? Show me some biblical evidence for that. I don't see it. It's not there. Also of note, the scriptures tell us that Moses was guilty of the same sin as the wilderness wanderers. And so was Aaron. And guess what? They weren't allowed to go into the land either. So does that mean that Moses and Aaron 
did not go to be with their Lord. I think we have proof that Moses was at Jesus' right at the transfiguration. I think we have some evidence that this passage is not saying uh, when you don't enter that rest, you don't have salvation, you don't go to heaven, you lose your salvation. So if rest is not salvation, we have to decide, we have to figure out what is rest. What's going on here in this passage? Rest for the wilderness wanderers is explicitly explained in God's word. Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 10 says of that generation and what was going on when God said, you won't enter my rest. Deuteronomy says, for you have not yet come into the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord God, your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he gives you rest from all of your enemies around you, so that you will live in security. So that's the rest that they were going to enter. And that's the rest that they did not, they were not able to enter. God said no. God said you're going to die in the wilderness. You don't get this rest. So for them, for the wilderness wanderers, as we see it mentioned here, that was the rest. Second Samuel 7, we're talking about David in Psalm 95. So maybe David has some insight to what rest could mean. This is the Davidic covenant. He tells us that Israel will one day be in the land, disturbed no more, and they will have rest from their enemies. This rest for Israel from all enemies has not happened yet. If you weren't aware, right? We all see it. It hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it must happen in the thousand-year reign of Christ. It must happen future, at least. And I would say it happens in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, also known as the Millennial Kingdom. So our author here in Hebrews is warning the former Jew, who's now a believer in Christ, maybe Jewish still in traditions, that's okay, but now they are a believer in Christ. Don't go back. You don't want to go back. And he explains why they shouldn't go back very vividly. He tells them that just like the wilderness wanderers who missed out on the blessings of enjoying the presence and protection of God in the land of Canaan, they don't want to be hard-hearted now and seem to be outside of the body of Christ. And I said seem to be. If you were wondering why I'm using that language, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, they don't want to worry themselves and their brothers and sisters in Christ about their missing out on the rest that's promised in the millennial kingdom. I think you'll track with me as we finish the chapter here and finish the story of these wilderness wanderers. Um, and just so you know, chapter 4, verse 1 uses the term seem to have, if they seem to have come short of it. Verses 12 through 14 read this way. Take care, brethren. Lest there should be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So maybe loss of salvation, right? If we don't understand the passage correctly, it sure sounds like it to me. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So we have a warning passage here. Hebrews is famous for the warning passages. Watch out, or else this might happen. Here's a warning. Verse 12. If we don't remember what verse 1 said, verse 12 says it again. Take care, brethren. 
take care, brothers and sisters. If we've forgotten that verse 1 said, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to believers. Did the audience change? No. You don't want to be in these shoes that we see in verse 12. Should uh, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, uh, standing away or falling away from the living God. We don't want to be in these shoes. We don't want to be the one who has an evil, unbelieving heart, uh, choosing to stand away, to stand aside from the living God. Avoid this. That's what the writer's saying. Don't be this. Don't go to this. The wilderness wanderers had become accustomed to their sin. You remember? It was consistent. Consistent. They were sinning against the Lord consistently. It became the new normal for them. They didn't at at first maybe see the penalty. Uh, We can't let ourselves get to that point. We can't let ourselves get to that point of habitual sin. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid getting to that point of habitual sin where we're standing away from God, where we've got an evil, unbelieving heart, even though we're believers, we're, we're, we're the chosen, we're saved. Uh, verse 13 has a really unique answer, and it's one that you might say, are you kidding me? Is this really the answer that God gives us through the writer of Hebrews? But encourage one another day after day. One key way that's given to us is each other. And this is, this is crazy. If you look at the Greek and how it's constructed here, um, those who are, uh, excuse me, um, the term uh, encourage, but encourage one another day after day. That term is actually parakalete. And you might have heard something similar in reference to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The one who comes alongside us. The one who comes and ministers to us. And you've got the same root being used here in reference to other believers. Those who come beside you. Those who are called to your side. Who beg and entreat and beseech on your behalf. And when do they do it? The literal translation is every day. Other believers in your life, do you have other believers in your life who are your paracletes who will come beside you every day to beg you and to entreat you and to beseech you to not get to the point that sin has hardened you? As long as it is still called today, Be those ones who are encouraging your fellow believers. If you don't have those believers in your life, you need to find people who love Jesus and who truly love you and who will come beside you to do that. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that the reality? Is that how you view sin? Do you look at sin and say, this is like a scary place to be. I don't want to be there. Because if I'm there, uh, maybe a once, uh, it's not so bad, uh, twice, oh, yeah, it's not good, three, t- oh. Do you look at sin and say, I don't want to be in that spot? I, I, no, because over time it hardens you. Have you seen it? Have you ever experienced it? 
There are moments in my life I've experienced it. Sin has hardened me. And I don't want to react in the way the Lord would have me react. I don't want to worship in that moment. I don't want... Sin hardens us. It's reality. As I read verse 14 there, we're getting close to the end. For we have become partakers of Christ. We've become partakers in Christ. Only if, is the question I wrote here. For we have become partakers of Christ. If, oh, you get to be saved. If, is that what it's saying? No. Is this our salvation up for grabs? No. This is our abiding up for grabs. Every single day of our lives. Our abiding is up for grabs. We have to decide. Oh, I want to abide. I want to be in Christ. I want to be continually a partaker in Christ. On those days when we push everything away, when sin is hardening us, are we abiding in Christ? Are we being a partaker in Christ in those moments? Not really. And I think that's the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. For if we, for we have become partakers in Christ if we hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Be a partaker. You want to be a partaker in Christ every day. The beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. You can be a partaker in Christ every single day, every moment, if we hold fast every single day, every single moment. That doesn't mean he thinks that perfectionism is possible, but he's saying you can consistently hold fast to Christ. It's possible. To hold fast. Do we want to partake in Christ day to day? That's the question there. And finally, verses 15 to 19. Hold fast. And then we continue. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Uh, That passage is kind of going to continue. We can't get to all of it today, right? But for these verses, you see a repetition in verse 15 of what we saw in 7 and 8. You see the same passage repeated for emphasis. Uh, We see that with these Hebrews warnings, much misinterpretation of the warnings in Hebrews has arisen over a failure to appreciate that this writer was drawing parallels between the behavior of God's people in the past, Israel, Old Testament, and the behavior of God's people in the present, the new church, this new organism, this new thing that he has created. He's drawing parallels. He's saying, remember what it was like back then? It could be kind of like that now. He's not saying this is a one-to-one. This is the exact same thing. They're not in the wilderness. It's not what he's saying. Christians face the same kinds of temptations that the Israelites did, though. So making the comparison makes sense, and we should learn from their mistakes. So the Hebrews receiving this letter or this sermon, hearing this sermon, should not become hardened. Because look back at that group of God's chosen people who became hardened. They were hardened continually in their sin. Look at them. They went too far. You don't want to be them, Hebrews. You don't want to be them, Josh. 
You don't want to be them. Believer, fill in the blank with your name. You don't want to be the hardened in sin like the wilderness wanders. And then we get the assurance in verse 19 that they could not enter this rest, that rest of the promised land. Why were they not able to? Because of their unbelief. A lack of faith. They did not believe God when through Caleb and Joshua they came back and said, we can go into the land. God, we can go into the land. They didn't believe Caleb and Joshua. Unbelief. They didn't believe all the signs as they exited Egypt. I mean, think about seeing all of those signs that they saw. If you were there and then you said, ah, I don't know if I want to believe this. I don't know if I want to follow God in this. Nah, mm, that's where they were. Unbelief. They didn't believe God's promises across the generations from Abraham forward. They didn't believe those in that moment. Because of unbelief, they weren't allowed to go into the land. Their unbelief had a penalty. Not entering the land and experiencing the promised rest. So for our generation, what is it teaching us? I think it teaches us that God requires faith, belief. That hasn't changed. He requires faith. I think it's teaching us that God is the builder of all things. I think it's teaching us that we could look to be faithful like Moses was and so much more faithful like Jesus was. I think it's teaching us to have soft hearts to God's word and his will, not hardened ones, not hardened by sin. And I think it's teaching us to come alongside one another day after day so as not to allow your brother or sister to be hardened by sin. And then finally, it's teaching us to consider Jesus and to partake in Christ, to abide in him to have fellowship with him. And in that, we receive the blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for daily ministering to us by your spirit. Thank you for indwelling us by your spirit. Thank you for using us and being willing to use us in the lives of other believers to come alongside. Uh, Make us those who do just that. Come alongside our fellow believers and encourage and point to Christ. And tell this world, believing and non-believing, to consider Jesus. Encourage this world to consider Jesus. Father, we love you and thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.